I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah, and I'm a writer. And this is our podcast, Reading During Recess. Today, we will be talking about E.B. White's novel, Stuart Little. I'm so excited that we're talking about this novel because this, I feel like, is what started this whole thing, right? Yeah, this is, Stuart Little is really where this podcast began because <laughs> Terry and I had a phone call a few months ago where we started talking about Stuart Little and how weird it is. And then <laughs> that's where I got the idea that maybe should, we should record some of these conversations. <laughs> we should subject other people to this. Yeah. Obviously, we have to start with the plot first, because for those of you who have not read Stuart Little, it is truly bananas. And don't think that watching the movie is a substitute, because it is not. Mm -mm. All right, so Stuart Little opens with the birth of Stuart, who is a semi-mouse, we'll get more into that later, born to a human family in New York City. And Stuart grows very quickly, kind of born a tiny adult. He's maybe a mouse and begins to behave like a young adult almost immediately. And (laughs) his family quickly adjusts to the changes that come with raising a smug little rodent um, and adapt their way of living to accommodate their exceptionally small son. So the first few chapters are mostly about his little misadventures around the house, like fiddling around inside the piano, which is something his brother makes him do to unstick a sticky key, which is like absurdly dangerous but again like i don't know the family could do better but whatever what else does he do his trip into the tub drain to retrieve his mother's wedding ring how hard it is for him to wash up in the morning and brush his teeth and one particularly exciting incident where he gets stuck in the window blinds and the family's cat snowbell who is stewart's nemesis puts stewart's hat and cane Yes, that's right. Stuart Little, (laughs) a mouse, wears a hat and walks with a cane in front of the mouse hole to give the family the impression that Stuart has run away down the mouse hole. And so they're all very distressed by this possibility. Um, But then later they find him in the blinds. So, And then there's another particularly riveting chapter where Stuart goes to Central Park and sails a toy ship as part of a boat race. Can I just say that my favorite part of this it's kind of like framed like employment, you know, that he's he is going to receive payment like a small sailor to do this work of sailing this toy boat. So he's talking to the owner of one of the boats and he says, I'm looking for a berth in a good ship, continued Stuart. And I thought perhaps you might sign me on. I'm strong and I'm quick. Are you sober? Asked the owner of the wasp. I do my work, said Stuart crisply, implying that he is not sober. <laughs> I, so oh, I immediately bookmarked that when I was reading it. Yeah, there's like some, there's a couple of references to Stuart drinking. Yeah, there are. It's very weird. <laughs> and it reads as so defensive. I love it. I do my work. <laughs> I know. I would love to be able to pull that out in a job interview. <laughs> yeah. He also, while he's sailing the boat at one point, that's when we find out that he has a gun. Oh, yes! On page He's 40. armed! Yeah. On page 43, it says, Waving his arms, Stuart ran forward and fired off his gun. Then he heard above the other voices on shore the voice of the owner of the wasp, which is the ship, yelling directions, telling him what to do. Stuart, Stuart, down jibs, down stay sail. And I, I don't know how Stuart knows how to sail a tiny boat, but he does. But yeah, he just has a gun. I don't know where you get a Mm -hmm. tiny gun. 
It's not explained. He also, at another point, has a tiny bow and arrow, which... Like, that one is much more conceivable and, like, appropriately kind of charming for a children's book. But he, yeah, as Sarah said, he also owns a gun. And that's the only time... Who bought him this gun? I don't know. Is he old enough to own a firearm? Again, he's, like, three. (laughs) We don't really know his age because he's, like, a tiny adult by a couple months. We can't say for sure, but yes... He's an open carrier. I don't know if that's an expression. <laughs> Back to the summary. So soon after the boat race, Stuart befriends a little bird named Margalo, who was rescued by the Littles, and she becomes part of the family and lives in their living room. And mm-hmm. Stuart defends her from Snowbell. Snowbell tries to attack Margalo, and so Stuart shoots Snowbell in the ear with a bow and arrow. What a champ. Also, I love Margalo. She's so cute. Can I read what she says when she's first introduced? Yes. She's too good for Stuart, who is, we'll get into this, extremely pompous. But she says, My name is Margalo, said the bird, softly in a musical voice. I come from fields once tall with wheat, from pastures deep in fern and thistle. I come from vales of meadow sweet, and I love to whistle. <laughs> I love her. She is very cute. So, Margalo then repays this kindness in the next chapter by saving Stuart after he falls in a garbage bin and is, uh, then ends up on a garbage truck and is nearly dumped. And in- then a garbage barge. Yeah, a garbage barge, yep. A garbage. <laughs> yes. He's on a garbage <laughs> and is nearly dumped in the ocean. And then Margalo comes in and she's like, Hey, grab onto me. I'll, I'll fly you away from here. I don't know why she couldn't have rescued him sooner. He was Yeah, because she was following him throughout the experience. Maybe the garbage truck was moving too fast. Maybe. But the garbage was moving rather slowly. Yeah, because, like, he's had a rough time of it. He's there for hours. He gets knocked on oh, yes. at one point. <laughs> he does. Actually, it's actually one of my favorite parts of the book, so let me find the exact quotation a fitting in for the smug little asshole <laughs> well thought Stuart, this is about the worst thing that could happen to anybody i guess this will be my last ride in this world for he knew that the garbage would be towed 20 miles out and dumped into the atlantic ocean i don't know how he knows that like that's a pretty specific measurement yeah <laughs> right. but anyway who told he says i guess there's nothing i can do about it he thought hopelessly but I'll just have to sit here bravely and die like a man. But I wish I didn't have to die with egg on my pants and butter on my cap and gravy on my shirt and orange pulp in my ear and banana peel wrapped around my middle. Well, we don't get to pick how we die, Stuart. (laughs) Some of us will die with orange pulp in our ears, and there's nothing to be done about it. So, sometime after Stuart's rescue from the garbage... Snowbell and a friend of his are talking one night about how frustrating it is for Snowbell to be a cat living in a home with two prey animals, one of whom is the child of his owners and one of whom is an invited guest. So he is aware that he can't really take either one of them out because he's the family cat and he's too, I guess, diplomatic for that. But in conversation with his friend, she points out that she can absolutely kill Margalo and would love to do so. And Snowbell is like, you're right, this is a great idea. 
This is overheard by a pigeon who, as a concerned friend, writes a letter to Margolo. And depending on your copy of the book, there's a really cute little illustration of the pigeon <laughs> sitting down and writing the letter. <laughs> and he's wearing a little monocle. It's very cute. The pigeon writes a letter to Margolo that reads, Beware of a strange cat who will come by night. Signed, a well-wisher. It's a very cryptic message, but Margolo is obviously now aware that her life is in danger, and without telling anybody in the family, she leaves that night. Yes. And Stuart is devastated, and so he leaves home to find her. He doesn't tell anybody where he's going or what he's doing. He just skips town. Again, I don't know how old he is. I would venture to say eight. Yeah. But he definitely acts like he's at least in his, like, late 20s. Yes. And as a kid, it was very distressing for me because I was, I think I was thinking about his parents. And it was, even if your child acts like they're in their late 20s, if they're still eight, (laughs) it's going to be very devastating if they vanish. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And especially since his parents get very concerned, like... When they thought he went down the mouse hole, they, like, started crying, you know? So it seems yeah. like... It's, He's their son. Yeah. They're invested. In, they birthed him, <laughs> horrifyingly. So anyway, on his way out of town, Stuart stops by to visit his friend. He's a dentist. His dentist friend actually says one of my favorite lines in the entire book, so let me... Uh, so Stuart is asking where he thinks he should go to look for Margolo. And Dr. Carey, the dentist friend, and the man whose tooth he's in the process of pulling are giving him advice, and they're suggesting that they go north. And Mr. Clydesdale, the patient, says, I look in Central Park, said Mr. Clydesdale. He says, look in Central Park, explained Dr. Carey, tucking another big wad of gauze into Mr. Clydesdale's cheek. And it's a good suggestion. Oftentimes, people with decayed teeth have sound ideas. Just such a backhanded compliment. (laughs) That is so hurtful. Imagine you walked into your dentist's office and they were like, oftentimes people with decayed teeth have nice clothes. (laughs) Like, thank you? (laughs) So weird. Also, how much advice is he getting from his patients that he, like, has this, this take on it now? Whatever. There's a lot to unpack about Dr. Carey because he also gives Stuart a gift for his travels. And this gift is a miniature car that runs on gas. And Sarah, do you want to add what else is exceptional about the miniature car? The car can turn invisible. It For exactly no reason. <laughs> it's really one of the weirdest parts of the entire book. Because what happens basically is that... Stuart is like, well, I feel a little self-conscious about driving this tiny car in public. I think people are going to stop and stare, which is a reasonable assumption to make, I think, when mm-hmm. you're a tiny mouse I driving would. a car. And then the doctor says, oh, don't worry. I installed a special button that turns it invisible. And so then the doctor presses the button, but the car is still running. And so it's invisible <laughs> and driving around the dentist office, crashing into everything, but they can't find it or see it to catch it. They just have to... Oh, but wait, it's worse than that. He, Stuart presses 
Stuart presses the button that starts it. Doctor, um, the doctor turns invisible, and then he's like, all right, Stuart, find the button. And Stuart's like, how am I going to find the button? And he's like, feel around for it. So Stuart presses a button, and that starts the car. And the doctor has the audacity to be, like, angry about it. <laughs> so it's, like, driving around, like Sarah said, and it's, like, crashing into things, and they're looking for it. And eventually they're just like, it'll run out of gas at some point, which is a long time to wait. Yeah. But um, so I guess they just sit and wait for it to run out of gas. And then by then it's like obviously basically in pieces. <laughs> and the doctor says, Stuart, I hope this will be a lesson to you. Never push a button on an automobile unless you are sure of what you are doing. <laughs> you jerk. Like you told him to find the invisible button. Excuse me? Also, I'm sorry, I have to say this. The way he introduces that the car is invisible. So yeah, Stuart says, won't everybody stop and stare at such a small automobile? And he says, uh, nobody will be able to see you. Why not, asked Stuart. Because this automobile is a thoroughly modern car. <laughs> it's not only noiseless, it's invisible. Neither of which modern cars were in the 40s or even today. <laughs> Unless, of course, I guess you drive a hybrid, in which case it is noiseless. But I do not think that the doctor predicted hybrids. And then after that, Stuart feels so terribly. The doctor fixes up the car, and then Stuart vows to never use the invisibility function again. And he doesn't. Good for him. I think it's clearly a bad idea. Also, I, who's to say it makes Stuart invisible? So uh, is he just, I would be, frankly, I think I would stop and stare more at a small mouse, like, levitating in a seated position across the ground. More also, so than a small car. Also, it's incredibly dangerous to drive an invisible car, especially when that car is much yeah. smaller than all the other cars. Like, it's just going to get exactly. run over. Exactly. Yes. And how is Stuart going to understand his own turning radius? Can you imagine trying to park or steer a car that you cannot see? There's no thought went into this. Also, why does this man own a miniature car that runs on gas and can turn invisible? Like, in theory, this might be a good idea for Stuart, but, like, why would you just own this? Right. Oh, my God. Sometimes people who extract decaying teeth do not have sound ideas. <laughs> So, anyway, Stuart drives around, leaves New York City, doesn't tell anyone where he's going, although he does, and this is one of the cutest things in the entire book. <laughs> he um, knows that he might not see his family again or might not see them for a long time, and so before he leaves, he pulls out a hair from his mom's comb to remember her by, and it's this really cute <laughs> illustration of Stuart, like, with all of his might pulling a hair from a comb. For and all its weirdness, it is very sweet. <laughs> it is. And so then he... Um, takes a job as a substitute teacher. Terry is a teacher, so maybe she can comment on the authenticity of this scene. First, before we get into the scene itself, can we talk about how he comes across this job? Yes. He's driving down the street and sees a man on the side of the road, and he's like, you look sad, and the man is like, I'm a superintendent, and I cannot find a substitute. I was like, this is amazing. Like, the whole superintendent of this county is on the side of the road, distraught because he can't find a sub the doctor says she may have rhinestones about the teacher who is ill <laughs> hello so the superintendent who is sulking on the side of the road uh, offers the substitute position to Stuart, who is a mouse all things considered 
And Stuart is like, for sure. So he like crawls into the grass and puts on like his like fanciest outfit. And the man thanks him and they shake hands. And then he's just the substitute, I guess. But so he shows up at school and immediately is just the most hostile young adult to these kids. It's incredible. He tells them this weird lie about how Mrs. Gunderson got sick, like taking different vitamins, which I guess is a lie. Like we, he has no background knowledge for this. Yeah, he's very stern. Yeah, he is. He basically tells them that all the subjects that they usually study are, are stupid and that he doesn't want to teach them that. So yeah, he goes through like arithmetic. He says, bother arithmetic. For spelling, he's like, spelling is super important. Everyone buy a dictionary. Writing, he's like, don't you guys know how to write? And they're like, for sure. And he's like, never mind then. And then he's like, why don't we just talk about something? Like, what if we all just hang out, you know? And the kids come up with some really great stuff. One boy asks if they can talk about the way it feels to hold a snake, which, love that idea. My favorite girl, Lydia Lacey, her suggestion, could we talk about sin and vice? (laughs) Pleaded Lydia Lacey. Queen. Oh my god. But Stuart shuts down all of these because he is not a good listener and says that he wants to talk about the king of the world. And they're like, there is no king of the world. The kids say that. And he's like, all right, then I'll be chairman of the world based on exactly nothing. Mary Bendix tells him, you're too small to be chairman of the world. And Stuart's (laughs) response is, oh, fish feathers. Size has nothing to do with it. It's temperament and ability that count. We haven't really seen that he has the temperament or ability either, but I do like... Too much of anything, frankly. And so then Stuart quizzes them on what is important in the world. And so, and there's actually a lot of really, kids have a lot of really nice answers to this. Henry Rackmeyer says, what is important is a shaft of sunlight at the end of a dark afternoon, a note in music, and the way the back of a baby's neck smells if its mother keeps it tidy. And And Stuart says, correct. (laughs) That's the answer he was looking for. It's so good. It's the best answer. Although he does say, uh, you forgot one thing, though. Mary Bendix, what did Henry Rackmeyer forget? He forgot ice cream with chocolate sauce on it, said Mary quickly. Exactly, said Stuart. I love this. That is, I gotta be honest, like, we're gonna make fun of this book a lot. We already have. But that is genuinely, like, one of my favorite paragraphs in all of literature. Yeah. It's just, it's a terrific exchange. It's so good. It's so well written. It's, it's funny and charming, and I really love it. And then, uh, and then they try to establish some laws, which... Stuart rejects some. Anthony suggests never poison anything but rats. Forgetting, I guess, who he's talking to. (laughs) (laughs) Very insensitive on the part of Anthony. Stuart says, that's no good. It's unfair to rats. A law has to be fair to everything. Everybody. Anthony looked sulky, but rats are unfair to us, he said. Rats are objectionable. And Stuart's, I know they are, said Stuart, but from a rat's point of view, poison is objectionable. A chairman has to see all sides to a problem. Have you got a rat's point of view? Asked Anthony. You look a little like a rat. <laughs> yeah, so then they have like this like short conversation about rats and someone suggests a law against fighting and Stuart says, impractical, men like to fight. <laughs> Very reductive take on gender roles. Yeah, and so then he, they decide on one law, which is absolutely no being mean, which is frankly a law that Stuart has already broken. <laughs> yeah. 
multiple times in this conversation. But This is always the part that I remembered best. This part has stood out so clearly in my mind for the last however many years until I reread this book. So they're like eager to try out this new law about not being mean. And I guess like to test it, he sees like there's a little girl who has a, a balsam pillow. Stuart tells a boy to grab it and take it away. And then he like, you know, accosts this boy and runs at him. And the boy knows it's just a test. But he, I guess he just like yells at him and says, let's get Harry and set him back before he becomes so mean. People will hardly recognize him anymore. And the other kids just crowd around him and like yell at him to give back the pillow. And it's very strange and like animalistic. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of Lord of the flies And then, oh, and it's also funny, too, because it's very obvious that Stuart wants to have the pillow. Yes! Because it's a tiny pillow that would be perfect for his head, I guess. So he's, like, (laughs) keeps making very obvious comments, hoping that she'll give it to him. (laughs) But she doesn't. Oh, it's so good. You don't want to sell it, do you? Oh, no, replied Catherine. It was a present to me. I suppose it was given to you by a boy you met at, like... Hoppet Kong last summer, and it reminds you of him, murmured Stuart dreamily. <laughs> yes, it was, said Catherine, blushing. Ah, said Stuart. Summers are wonderful, aren't they, Catherine? So creepy. How does he know that? <laughs> right? Is this the only lake in the area? What? Does Stuart have this same, like, experience? <laughs> we just, I don't know. It's like the only um, hint that we get that Stuart is maybe omniscient. Because he knew what the pillow said. Yeah, he did know what the pillow said. <laughs> yeah, when she, he first sees the pillow, what does he say? Uh, what have you got in your hand? She says, it's a tiny pillow stuffed with sweet balsam. Does it say, for you I pine, for you I balsam on it? Yes, said Catherine. So weird. <laughs> and then after that exchange, he just leaves. <laughs> he was supposed to substitute, I assume, for probably a full day, because that's how long you usually hire a sub for. But he just walks out. He says, never forget your summer times, my dears. He said, well, I've got to be getting along. It's been a pleasure to know you all. Class is dismissed. <laughs> Stuart strode rapidly towards the door, climbed into the car, and with a final wave of the hand, drove off in a northerly direction, while the children raced along and screamed, goodbye. <laughs> yeah, and so that's how that chapter of his life ends. <laughs> he was there for all of 30 minutes at tops. And the man is just gone. And the poor superintendent, you know? Right? You know, like, he thinks this problem is solved. Tomorrow, he's going to be back out there because this teacher is still going to have rhinestones, whatever that means. And the superintendent is going to be back on the side of the road in despair because Stuart felt like his work was done. Oh, my God. So it's my favorite part of the entire book. I think when that part was over, when I first read this as a kid, I stopped reading it. I was like, all right, then I was like, it doesn't get better than this. It is really funny. I like cackled while I was reading it. (laughs) (laughs) And so then on his travels, Stuart ends up in a town called Ames Crossing, where he learns of Harriet Ames, who is a young woman who is just his size but is human and not mouse-like. And so Stuart writes her a letter inviting her on a date, and he prepares for the date meticulously. He purchases a tiny miniature canoe that's a souvenir and tries to prepare a picnic. And then what happens, Terry? 
So she comes to meet him on the date and he's super jazzed. He's written her this like weird, very formal letter introducing himself. And I have to say, he is up front. He does tell her that he is akin to a mouse. Although he does not admit that he essentially is one. Yeah, he says, I look rather like a mouse, which like, which I don't really feel like fully prepares her for. Yeah, that is a lie by omission. Like I have met people who I felt look rather like mice, (laughs) but I would not say that they are, as Stuart is, a mouse-esque being. Yeah, more mouse than person. But yeah, so like Sarah said, he's uh, prepared this canoe and a picnic, and he's got this fairly inflated sense of self because he used to work on a sailing ship. And when Harriet shows up for the date, he takes her down to where he put the the canoe, and it's gone. It appears to have been taken. And eventually they, they run down the bank and they find it, but it's absolutely destroyed. Some kids had clearly found it. They, like, tied a piece of string to it. They smashed it up. The pillow that he made is gone. And he's devastated. Stuart was heartbroken. He did not know what to do. He sat down on the twig and buried his head in his hands. Oh, gee, he kept saying. Oh, gee, whiz. Which is my favorite expression of consternation. And then throws, like, a ginormous temper tantrum. Hugely. And so Harriet has the best attitude of any person on a shitty date of all time. She's like... He's, he's very upset about the piece of string or rope tied to it. She's like, we could pretend we were fishing, said Harriet, who didn't realize that some people are fussy about boats. I don't want to pretend I'm fishing, cried Stuart desperately. Besides, look at the mud. Look at it. He was screaming now. Imagine you're on a date with a guy who turns out to be a rat, and then he, like, screams at you? So Harriet just leaves she's like okay well sorry this didn't work out (laughs) see you never and Stuart doesn't seem to realize that he screwed up goodbye miss Ames said Stuart I am sorry our evening on the river had to end like this so am I said Harriet and she walked away along the wet path towards Tracy's lane leaving Stuart alone with his broken dreams and his damaged canoe (laughs) it's very sad Oh, yeah, and the evening did not have to end like this. No. You did this. I know. With your behavior. It's actually really funny. So as I was doing some more reading online, I found an article. It was published on The Cut, and it's written by Naomi Fry, and the title is, I Think About This A Lot, When Stuart Little Went On A Date. (laughs) And she says here, And yet, whenever I felt that particular familiar tug of humiliation and longing in my own life, I've thought of Stuart and Harriet. This episode, the perspiring, horny, thwarted Stuart, who is, for all intents and purposes, a mouse. The impervious, unflappable, wealthy Harriet, who is, for all intents and purposes, a girl has been inscribed on my mind for the past 30-some years as a model of what adult romance or even what one of those complicated adult friendships might look like. A pronounced power differential, objection, yearning. If this sounds grim, it's also, I've often found, true. Oh my god, Naomi, you said it! It's really funny, because as I was reading it, I was like, this is super dark, because he acts so much like a real man. Just the absolute, the absolute inability to compromise, to... To adjust expectations. Yes. (laughs) 
And then he had this idea that she was going to sit on a lily pad and watch him swim. You know, which is infuriating. <laughs> it's also funny because it's like, he's definitely, like, she's right. He's definitely horny. I don't know how mm-hmm. E.B. White is able to convey that, but it definitely comes across. <laughs> Makes me super uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, man. Trying- he's so cocky and pompous and unpleasant to this poor girl. I know. When she shows up, Stuart tries to make his voice sound as though he has an English accent. Oh, yeah, this is the part where I'm like, he's definitely horny. So Stuart planned to wear his swimming trunks under his clothes so that he could dive off the lily pad into the cool stream. He would swim the crawl stroke up and down and all around the lily pad while Harriet watched, admiring his ability as a swimmer. Stuart chewed the spruce gum very rapidly as he thought about this part of the episode. (laughs) So gross. He's like, she's going to watch me swim and have a really, really good time. Before we started recording, Terry said that... This reminded her of Ben Shapiro. <laughs> I don't know, Terry, you want to elaborate on that? I. It's just the letter he writes has this... He writes her a letter inviting her on this date, and it has this very, like, stilted way of speaking, this, like, uncomfortable, grandiose... Pray forgive me, Miss Ames, continued Stuart, for presuming to strike up an acquaintance on so slender an excuse as your physical similarity. But of course, the fact is, as you yourself must know, there are very few people who are only two inches in height. I say two inches. Actually, I am somewhat taller than that. Very Ben Shapiro thing to say. (laughs) I'm also muscular beyond my years. Let me be perfectly blunt, and so many men on Tinder have said that. My purpose in writing this brief note is to suggest we meet. So this book is just so bizarre, because when this happens, you know, I think if you aren't familiar with the storyline, you see this tiny girl being introduced and you're like, oh, perfect, it's going to become, this is going to go somewhere. And then he just craps all over it. (laughs) And how many chances is he going to get? Like, that, she is literally the only other person probably on this earth who is compatible with you in terms of size. And because someone... And not even in species, and she's still willing to meet up. It's just crazy. It's such a, it's such a weird and, like, weirdly realistic and depressing end for this date. And so then after that... The next morning, Stuart leaves Ames Crossing to continue his search for Margalow. Remember Margalow? And the book ends there. He's just driving along. Um, he's on his way. He doesn't know where he's going. Truly has no idea where Margalow is. Oh, no. She's a bird. Yeah. He's, he's going north on the suggestion of a man with decayed teeth. That is all he has. <laughs> and the reason the man suggested north is because they were like, what color is the bird? And Stuart goes, brown. And they're like, north for sure. (laughs) Yeah, and so Stuart just stops in these towns and is like, has anyone seen a brown bird? (laughs) And people are like, no. (laughs) What? (laughs) Bye, Stuart. Hope you find your bird. (laughs) Although he does have this really pleasant conversation with the telephone repairman. Yeah. Who is a poet. In nature, he's very, he reminds me of Margalo, actually. Margalo is too good for Stuart, but I think she could date the telephone repairman because he has a way with words. He says, my business has taken me into spruce woods on winter nights where the snow lay soft, deep and soft, 
a perfect place for a carnival of rabbits. I have sat at peace at the freight platforms of railroad junctions in the north in the warm hours and with the warm smells. I know fresh lakes in the north, undisturbed except by fish and hawk, and, of course, by the telephone company, which has to follow its nose. I know all these places well. And then Stuart's like, yeah, that's true, I gotta go. Thanks. <laughs> and leaves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then it is over. <laughs> it's over. It is 131 pages. Significant number. Of nonstop thrills. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a lot of delightful illustrations, which we've mentioned. The book is illustrated by Garth Williams, and the drawings are very charming. There's a really cute little one of him cutting down a dandelion. Ooh. He has, like, dandelion milk and deviled ham. What is deviled ham? If you know, please tell us. Yeah. Um, for his light supper while he's, waiting, while he's waiting to blow everything with Harriet. And it's just so cute! He's got a little axe. It is oh, yeah, really he also cute. owns an axe. That's the third weapon that Stuart owns. <laughs> yeah, it is very weird. Because, like, he sleeps at home. He sleeps in a cigarette box. So it's like, they couldn't find him a small bed, but they could find him a <laughs> tiny gun, a tiny axe, and a tiny bow and arrow. It just seems <laughs> like their priorities are a little a little off. I would hate to meet the Littles. To be fair, they're probably dealing with some level of trauma after this horrific birthing incident. Yeah, so I there's a few like kind of common misconceptions about Stuart Little that I'd like to debunk. One of them is that Stuart Little is adopted, and I think that that misconception comes from the movie because in the movie, which we'll talk about later, Stuart Little is adopted. In the book, Stuart Little is born of human parents. Mm-hmm. He's the second child. They successfully had one regular son. Yeah. So they have no reason to believe that something could go terribly wrong the second time. And then they create this abomination. Yeah, I think it's important. I'll just read the very, very beginning of the book. When Mrs. Frederick C. Little's second son arrived, everyone noticed that he was not much bigger than a mouse. The truth of the matter was, the baby looked very much like a mouse in every way. He was only about two inches high, and he had a mouse's sharp nose, a mouse's tail, a mouse's whiskers, and the pleasant, shy manner of a mouse. Before he was many days old, he was not only looking like a mouse, but acting like one too, wearing a gray hat and carrying a small cane. What? Very typical mouse behavior. Yeah, is that what a mouse acts For sure. Like? Yeah. <laughs> typical mouse behavior. Um, okay. But that means, Sarah, that we have to get into the biggest... I mean, Sarah titled this section The Big Debunking. I mean, we have to address it, guys. The true horror of this and what set Sarah off on our initial conversation is that Stuart Little is not a mouse. He is not a mouse. He is a human being who, by all appearances, is a mouse, which is so much worse. Oh my god, and I remember this as a kid. I'm sorry I'm yelling, but this is only because I feel so strongly. Because as a child, I recognized that. Like, I read it, and I was like, mm. And I think if they had said, I think if E.B. White had written, like, Mrs. Little gave birth to a mouse, I think I could have been like, I can suspend disbelief for sure. But because he's like, yeah, it's a baby who looks exactly like a mouse, I was like, that can happen? It can go that wrong? 
It like I don't know. It takes away some of the charm in a way. So as as you noticed when I read that beginning, it says that he looks like a mouse. And at first I was like, okay, well maybe they just like haven't accepted the fact that she gave birth to a mouse. You know, maybe they're just in denial. They're like, oh yeah, our baby sure does look a lot like a mouse. But then later on in the book, when Stuart is writing the letter to Harriet, he self-describes as, um, my only drawback is that I look something like a mouse. So he clearly doesn't perceive himself as a mouse. He just thinks he looks like one. And then (laughs) when I was doing more research, E.B. White wrote a letter to his editor in which he said, quote, Stuart is obviously not a mouse, but rather a small guy who looks very much like a mouse. Obviously! Like, yeah, that would be insane, right? I would never do that. I would never write a book where a woman gives birth to a mouse. Only one much worse. This horrific birth does result in one of my favorite lines in literature, because they take him to the doctor... Because they're like, he's really small, which is, like, a fair concern for people to have about a baby. But, again, like, that would not be first on my list. would be like, he's awful tiny. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they um, take him to the doctor because he's not gaining enough weight. Yeah, like, enough? Did you want him to be, like, nine pounds? Where were you going with... Oh, my God. So they take him to the doctor, and it says, The doctor was delighted with Stuart and said that it was very unusual for an American family to have a mouse. <laughs> Implying that there's, like, thousands of these little, like, abominations running around Europe, you know? That, my God, what a shocking thing to happen to an American family. (laughs) It is so weird. Also, Um, again, that it is unusual, but not unheard of. That this is... This is a curse that has befallen families before. (laughs) It actually does... There's been some references in some of the the literature I've read about Stuart Little to Kafka's Metamorphosis. So Metamorphosis is a novella by Kafka, and it tells the story of Gregor Samsa, who wakes one morning inexplicably to find himself transformed into a giant insect. And one of the most unsettling parts about Metamorphosis is just kind of the straightforward, matter-of-fact storytelling about this really surreal event that's very distressing. And that's, like, kind of similar to what happens in Stuart Little, where basically, like, this woman, like, presumably she had, so she knew she was pregnant, so we're assuming she had, like, a large baby bump, right? Good God. And then she gave birth, and all that came out was a tiny mouse. And and they all adjust to it remarkably well. They're like, yeah, this is Stuart, he's our son, here's his tiny cane. (laughs) The doctor's like, his temperature's normal. Everyone, everyone who encounters Stuart, none of them scream or run away or they all are just like, yeah, it's little Stuart, which I mean, it's kind of beautiful in a way. They're all just incredibly accepting of this very fundamental difference. It's pretty touching. Yeah. I mean, it is his, his parents. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the littles because on one hand, they send him to do a lot of tasks that are very dangerous. Yeah. Like going down the drain or fixing hiding the in the piano. Yeah, where he is deaf for hours afterwards. I mean, that is insane. <laughs> what is this a villainous thing to do? A lot of these are also suggested by his brother, who seems to be a real bastard. Yeah, his brother is pretty useless. Um, <laughs> Although he did accidentally save him from the drapes that one time that Stuart managed to roll himself up inside of them. That's true. Which also reads as kind of nightmarish. He's, like, screaming for help, and his family cannot hear him inside the drapes. Yeah. Um, he gets stuck in the fridge at one point. Yes, yeah, he gets stuck in the fridge. And he also, they can't hear him scream. 
It's really scary, actually. <laughs> they can't hear him scream. In the fridge, no one can hear you scream. And that, and when he gets out of the fridge, he asks if he can have some brandy. So, to warm. Which is a very normal yeah. thing to do. And that's why... Well, yeah, he's not sober, so... Give the man a drink. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot to talk about here. I want to first, though, establish who this book was written by. So... It's one of the three classic children's books written by E.B. White. E.B. stands for Elwyn Brooks White, so I can see why he went by E.B. And he wrote Stuart Little in 1945, Charlotte's Web in 1952, and Trumpet of the Swan in 1970. And he was also a writer and editor for The New Yorker. He was one of the first writers who wrote at The New Yorker back when it was new. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, just call it The Yorker now. <laughs> He was the co-author of the English style guide, The Elements of Style, which he co-authored with William Strunk. I actually have read that book and really like it. <laughs> well, there you go. As far as, like, grammar texts go, uh, if that is something you enjoy reading, I suggest reading it. Yeah. You don't have to listen to it. Grammar is fake. Nothing's real. But it's, it's a good read. Yeah, it's one of the most popular grammar texts of all time, so... Compared to what? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, he was married to Catherine Engel, who was also a New Yorker writer and editor. And this is my favorite anecdote I found out about E.B. White. He was apparently very shy. And when he, he didn't want to work at the New Yorker, I think, I don't know, he didn't like interacting with people. I'm not sure. They originally finally negotiated with him that he could work at the New Yorker and he only had to come in on Thursdays. Oh, what a sweet gig. I know, right? So he was actually a very famous author in terms of not like celebrity, but he was very popular. He was one of the most popular essay writers of the time. But when he worked at the New Yorker, if people came to the office that he didn't know, he would slip out of the fire escape to avoid having to talk to them and then go to a restaurant down the street. And in 1978, he won a special Pulitzer Prize for his work, and he also received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1963, and he received the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal from the U.S. Professional Children's Librarians in 1970, which is pretty impressive considering he only ever wrote three children's books. And two of them were really good. <laughs> yeah. I I can't be mean. I actually genuinely like this book a lot, but we do have a moral obligation to roast it throughout this entire podcast. Yes. So a lot of readers were obviously curious as to where the where the hell he got this idea. Uh, and he said, many years ago, I went to bed one night in a railway sleeping car. And during the night, I dreamed about a tiny boy who acted rather like a rat. That's how the idea for Stuart Little got started. Which I love. I have met many men who act like rats, so I <laughs> for sure get this. My favorite part, though, is that he had this dream on the way back to New York from the Shenandoah Valley. Oh, hey. Woohoo! So in 2008, Jill Lepore published an article in The New Yorker called The Lion and the Mouse, The Battle That Reshaped Children's Literature. And it's a really interesting article. So she wrote about the creation of and the reception of White's first children's book, which is Stuart Little. So it took him many years to write, which I think is hilarious because it's just really, really, truly reads like a first draft, but it was not. Lepore writes about how the book was originally encouraged by Anne Carol Moore, 
who was an American educator and writer and advocate of children's libraries. And from 1906 to 1941, she headed the children's library services for the New York Public Library System. And she's actually a really important figure in the history of children's literature and libraries. She basically created the idea of children's rooms and libraries. And wow. Yeah. Before her, basically, kids weren't really allowed in libraries because they were <laughs> they were considered to be too annoying. But she started the practice. Are you going to tell them that they're wrong? <laughs> I'm kidding, by the way. I do think that there should be children's sections in libraries. Yeah, so she was the one who like was like, maybe we should get a room with tiny furniture and make the tables close to the ground and buy books that kids <laughs> like to read, which is really sweet. And so she created this children's room at the New York Public Library, and it spread throughout the New York Public Library system and throughout the country. And she had four standards that she called the four respects. The first one is respect for children. She wanted children to be treated as individuals and be treated seriously. Respect for children's books. Moore was adamant that books for children should be well-written, factually accurate, and should not mix fact and fantasy, which kind of foreshadows her issues <laughs> with Stuart Little. The third respect was respect for fellow workers, and uh, she insisted that the children's library should be viewed as an equal part of the complete library, and respect for the professional standing of children's librarians. Moore felt that the profession must recognize children's librarianship as a professional specialty. So, you know, I can get behind most of those things. Yeah, that's great. And so she really encouraged E.B. White, who was, again, at this point, one of the most famous and successful authors in America, to write a children's book. And then he <laughs> sent Stuart Little to her, and she was horrified. She said that it was the most disappointed she's ever been in her life. <laughs> Which is a really really mean thing to say oh she said that sarah's a sarah's a writer could you imagine getting that feedback oh my god especially for someone who for years has been like come on write the book write the book and then like like <laughs> please like please finish the damn book oh my god um and so she said that the story was out of hand that Stuart was always staggeringly out of scale and that White had blurred reality and fantasy. The two worlds were all mixed up, and children wouldn't be able to tell them apart. <laughs> I did harbor some anxiety for a while. <laughs> E.B. White said that she said, uh, she said something about it's having been written by a sick mind, E.B. White remembered. Jesus. And he said, it's unnerving to be told you're bad for children, but I detected in Miss Moore's letter an assumption that there are rules governing the writing of juvenile literature. Rules as inflexible as the rules for lawn tennis. And this I was not sure of. Children can easily sail over the fence that separates reality from make-believe. They go over it like little springboks. A fence that can throw a librarian is nothing to a child. That's a great take. Yeah. And I agree that mixing fantasy and reality is not only fine, but also impossible to avoid, I feel like. Like, what... Yeah. There are other things about this book I find unsettling, but I I don't think make-believe as a whole is a, a yeah. problem. Yeah, agreed. Um, but she said that she said that Stuart Little would be, would be very hard to place in libraries and schools all over the country, which was really kind of a threat because she had a lot of control over that as, like, you know, a really influential librarian. 
And for a while, she did kind of succeed in keeping libraries from buying the book and teachers from teaching it, but it ultimately failed. E.B. White said at one point, he got into the shelves of the library all right, but I think he had to gnaw his way in. <laughs> Terrific image. Thank you, Eeb. Yeah. So actually, at another point, E.B. White also said that the book, quote, it would seem to be for children, but I'm not fussy who reads it. Which is true. It's very um, dry. Yeah. And sophisticated. I think that it will appeal to a certain kind of child, a dry child, (laughs) and to plenty of adults. Although, actually, based on Goodreads reviews, I could be wrong about that. And we will get into those. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very polarizing book on the internet. So the book was originally kind of got mixed reviews. E.B. White, again, was, like, very famous. And so there was a lot of excitement about this book. And then some people were kind of like, huh, (laughs) that's what you wrote. (laughs) Yeah. Of all the books I've ever read, this is one of them. The New York Times Review in 1945 praised it, but also said that the parts of Stuart Little are greater than the whole, and the book doesn't hold to the same mood or move in a straight line. There are loose ends of the story of the sort that make children ask, what happened then? And there isn't any answer. Mr. White has a tendency to write amusing scenes instead of telling a story. It is for sure disjointed. It's a pretty fair assessment. Um, It reads kind of like a fever dream, which actually, E.B. White, when he was writing it, he said that I really only go at it when I'm laid up in bed sick, and lately I've been enjoying fine health. My fears about writing for children are great. One can so easily slip into a cheap sort of whimsy or cuteness. I don't trust myself in this treacherous field unless I'm running a degree of fever. (laughs) But the New York Times Review did note that he, quote, has a talent for making big things small and homely, as if he saw the world distinctly through the wrong end of a telescope. Or, as if to change the figure, he took his readers down the rabbit hole and showed them the bottle that Alice found there, the little bottle with drink me printed on the label. It is charming. Yeah, the small scale is really cute. And the attention to detail, at one point, uh, one of my favorite similes in the book, it's about Stuart's morning routine, which is understandably very challenging. So he needs to get to the bathroom to turn on the light. But he can't reach the light switch, of course. So Stuart's father, quote, had thoughtfully tied a long string to the pull chain of the light. The string reached clear to the floor. By grasping it as high as he could and throwing his whole weight on it, Stuart was able to turn on the light. Swinging on the string this way, with his long bathrobe trailing around his ankles, he looked like a little old friar pulling the bell rope in an abbey. That's so cute. And there's a little illustration of it, too. It's really cute. Uh, So, of course, as we said, it is more than a little unnerving that Stuart's mother gives birth to something akin to a mouse. A quote from Mara Gubar in Species Trouble, The Objection of Adolescence in E.B. White's Stuart Little. When E.B. White's Stuart Little appeared in 1945, quite a controversy ensued. As Lucian L. Augusta has recounted, various readers and critics assailed the work as a tasteless venture into the monstrous and unnatural in its grotesque depiction of the birth of a mouse to a human mother. The influential children's librarian Anne Carol Moore declared the book unpublishable, while White's New Yorker colleague Harold Ross was so disturbed by the first chapter that he burst into his friend's office shouting, God damn it, White, you should have had him adopted. Although I will say that, and this we can actually talk about our segment, The Book Was Better. 
So there was a 1999 live-action computer animated film of Stuart Little in which Stuart was adopted. It was directed by Rob Minkoff, and the screenplay was written by M. Night Shyamalan, which I did this not know. This is news! Yeah. And it stars Gina Davis, Hugh Laurie, and... Hugh Laurie's in it? Yes. He's Mr. Little. Of course. It's so weird. And Michael J. Fox is Stuart Little. The movie has a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, which honestly feels a little too high. The plot is extremely different than the book. So Stuart is adopted from an orphanage, which avoids some problems, but introduces some new issues. Such as imagine being a child in an orphanage and a couple shows up and they take the rat. (laughs) Could your self-esteem ever recover? Also, this this world that they're in is very clearly New York's Manhattan in the 1990s, and there's an orphanage. What? <laughs> yeah, and so- also because Stuart is a mouse in this universe, it's it's easier to explain the differences between animals and people in Stuart Little because Stuart Little is not a mouse. So it's like fair that he would be able to communicate with like Margalow and Snowbell. But also fair that Margalow and Snowbell would not be able to communicate with the Littles because Stuart is this strange bridge between the animal and human world. But in the movie, the family still owns a cat. Pets still exist. But Stuart is, is Stuart just like a sentient mouse? Are all animals sentient in the 1999 Stuart Little universe? Yes, they are. So all the animals talk, including Snowbell. But they own Snowbell, and they adopted Stuart. Yes. So this, to me, is problematic, to say the least. <laughs> yes. That's Snowbell's big beef with Stuart, is that it's unnatural for a cat to have a mouse as a master. So the plot is really different than the book. They bring Stuart home. They've told their human son, George, we're going to adopt you a baby brother today. And he says, yay, all right, goes off to school, comes home, and they're like, come meet your baby brother. No warning, no explanation. They're just like, here he is. And it's Stuart Little, and the brother is, like, grossed out. Stuart's also, at this point, I think, very wet, because the cat has just put him in his mouth and spit him out. So he's, like, wet, pretty well-dressed, but still, you know, a mouse. And the human brother is, like, okay like handles it pretty well i would say like he doesn't even but cry wouldn't you think that your parents were having like a serious mental breakdown if they were like here's your new brother and they handed you a wet rat and they literally just shrug it off they're like he'll get used to it it's extremely weird and so then Stuart's birth parents show up these two mice show up at the house and they're like we want to take our son back so they do But then it turns out that they are not actually his parents, that his parents were killed in a supermarket accident. Um, I think they were hit by a can, like a can of beans squished them. That is terrible. I know. And that the mice that said they were his parents are frauds that have been hired by Snowbell to kidnap (gasps) Stuart so that he can be brought to the alley cats and killed. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And so he escapes... Question, what happens to Snowbell so, after so, the murder plot? Yeah, so Snowbell regrets his participation and I think ends up helping save Stuart at the end. Okay, charming. Yeah. Good redemption arc for Snowbell. 
Sorry, while we were talking, I remembered this tweet that I had saved from a while ago from Ken Jennings. I feel like it was written very specifically for us because I feel like the audience for this tweet can only be a handful of people. And good news, it includes you and me. Would you like to hear it? Yes. Stuart Little is not a mouse. E.B. White is very clear. He's a two-inch human with the features of a mouse. And then two assistant. Next slide. (laughs) He emerges looking like a mouse from the vagina of a pregnant woman in normal human fashion and later falls in love with a bird. (laughs) Which, frankly, we should have just used for our summary. Like, I don't know why we said all the rest of this stuff. That was a waste of time. That's pretty much the gist. Although it doesn't mention that he's employed as a substitute teacher. It does not. And that is the most important part of the book. Or that he is briefly involved with a human woman who is two inches high. Mm -hmm. Okay, guys, we have two types of reviews for you today. I am so excited that there were reviews for this. We have reviews from children and we have reviews from adults. And both of them offer delights in different ways. So this is from Dogo Books, which is a website where kids can rate and review different books. And Pee Wee McFly said, It is about a mouse named Stuart Little who lives with an American family near a park in New York City. Stuart lives with the house cat Snowbell. Snowbell is jealous of Stuart because mouses are usually prey for cats. But unlike Stuart is a member of the Little family, so Snowbell can't eat Stuart like he wants to. I recommend this book to people who like adventure and mouses who try not to get eaten by a cat. Five stars. <laughs> Pee Wee McFly, I love you. That's a very wholesome take. Yes. Uh, are you ready for a less wholesome adult take? Yes. All right, this one broke me. Should be noted, this is not from a child. This is from an adult on Goodreads Reviews. Lark Bonobi says, The last time I read Stuart Little, I was seven years old, and my God, this book is just as horrific and grotesque as I remember. Imagine if you were expecting a baby, and instead you gave birth to a tiny creature from the order Rodentia, complete with a hairless tail that is as long as its body. White spends absolutely no time in this wretched book exploring how Stuart's mother must have felt about her birth experience. I'm left to ponder her trauma, because at best it's only implied in the way she willfully neglects the mouse spawn's well-being. Even though Stuart is a perfectly polite, perfectly... I wouldn't call him polite. Mm -mm. Sorry. Breaking from the quote to point out that I do not find Stuart to be perfectly polite. Yeah. But, Lark says, even though Stuart is a perfectly polite, perfectly groomed little mouse from the beginning, carrying a cane even, and meticulously brushing his little teeth and smoothing his whiskers every morning, she sends him down a slimy pipe to rescue her wedding ring and sends him into the piano while it's being played to unstick a hammer, causing temporary deafness, and loses him in a roll-up shade, and terrorizes him with a family cat, and locks him in the refrigerator, and loses him in a garbage truck, and neglects him when he's gravely ill, and finally loses him for good when he runs away on a quest to find a girl to marry, or if not a girl, then maybe a bird. <laughs> okay, in fairness to Stuart's, Stuart Little's mother, Mrs. Little, her husband and son played a role in this That's um, abuse of Stuart. So let's not, like, go off Freudian here and just blame Mom. There's other stuff happening here. But Lark continues, I'm interested in Mrs. Little. I want to know her makeup. I wonder whether she is aware of her trauma or is acting out with unintended malice towards Stuart while in a catatonic state of grief over the birth of this tiny monster. I was grossed out by this book as a child. I always thought my intense dislike for it was because my mother was pregnant when I read it, but actually it's because it's a terrible book. 
The end. <laughs> so that's that on that. Strong take from Lark. Another child? Yes. So Kristen said, I really liked this book because there were so many cute things like him meeting Marglow and meeting a girl he likes. Some parts of this story were really sad, like how he got stuck in places or almost all his things got messed up. Also, I liked how Stuart was so nice and planned many things for Harriet. I really liked this book. Kristen. That's very sweet. I feel like some of his pompousness went over her head, but that's okay. That's all right. Can I please read you this adult quote from Goodreads, Jenna McCullough, who was very curt and to the point. She said, I did not like two humans having a mouse baby. It does not seem to phase anybody else, though. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) Yep. Can you read the next one, too, under that? I would love to. This is a child's review offered by an adult on Goodreads. Aaron posted that Mary, four years old, said, I'll give it no stars. (laughs) Here's another children's review from BlobGoo456. He said, I liked how Stuart went on adventures throughout the book. I also liked that he was born from a human, but he is a mouse. I feel bad for Stuart. Just because he's so small doesn't mean he can't be someone special. That's beautiful. And the exact opposite opinion of Jenna, or whatever her name was. Right. That was exactly, Jeanette, exactly what she did not like about the book. (laughs) Oh, man. Can I please read uh, Wild Child 999's review? Yes. This is a child on Dogo. I agree. Not realistic. But the book is so great. We had to do a project on book. I chose Stuart Little. I enjoyed Margolo, Snowbell, George, Mr. and Mrs. Little. All the people and animals in this book were full of emotion. It was like I was right there. I was Stuart. I was flying on a bird. I got stuck in the fridge. I got Mrs. Little's ring out of the drain. I bought a canoe. I was a substitute teacher. Heart emoji. This book. Five stars. <laughs> I love that. I know these these range from like very exciting to very mundane. I was flying I was... on a bird. I was a substitute teacher. If you get a high school diploma, you can also be a substitute teacher. Wild wild child 999. Yeah. And, you know, I you can buy a canoe anytime. Yeah. You can probably get stuck in a fridge, too. <laughs> if that's important to you. The next review from a child is from Sandy, who I think I might not have read the book. Um, they said, a small mouse in such a big world finds a home in a homeless shelter. Poor Stewart's parents died in a car accident. Five stars. None of that happens in the book. <laughs> There's no homeless shelter. His parents don't die in the book. They do die. They they are dead in the movie. So maybe they saw the movie and got confused. Um, but they didn't die in a car accident. Also, or car accidents. Yeah, car accidents to be more specific. But I like that this complete misreading and misunderstanding do not tarnish Sandy FMK's experience of the book at all. They still gave it five stars. And thank God. All right, I have one more review from Allie on Goodreads, who, she says, It was a surprise that Mrs. Little had a mouse for a newborn baby. In one of the chapters, Snowball, the Little's cat, wrapped up in the curtains. But George, the brother, happened to roll down the curtains, and Stuart rolls out. One day, Mrs. Little found a bird named Margolo on the window seal. Stuart and Margolo became best friends. One night, Stuart crept down the stairs to where Margolo was sleeping. Snowball the cat tried to pounce on Margolo, but Stuart saved her. One day Margolo ran away because of Snowball. 
Will Stewart find Margalo? Just read to find out. <laughs> Which is like inaccurate. That's you cannot find out by reading. Yeah. So she is Allie is leading you astray. But she does close out her review. She says, before in the book, Margalo saves Stuart from getting dumped in the Atlantic Ocean. I like this book. <laughs> so there's some, like, time jumps here. Yeah, it's a little disjointed, but she knows what she likes. But much like Stuart Little, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a good homage to the book. Is it time for Your Fave is Problematic? I think so. So moving into Your Fave is Problematic... The book isn't that problematic, although there are some insensitive, perhaps racist jokes about canoeing and Native Americans, which are not good. And I was reading more of E.B. White's other work, and it kind of has the general casual racism and sexism that you would expect to find in writing that was written in the 1930s and 1940s by a white man. But this is really weird. I don't think it belongs in the Your Fave is Problematic segment because it's not really problematic, but I don't know what else to call it, and it makes me feel weird. So the truth is that E.B. White kind of predicted (laughs) 9-11. He didn't really do anything with this information. I mean, maybe it's our fault that we didn't do anything with the information. Exactly. We had it. I mean, he told... He's like... He's Cassandra. He's the prophet. And his screams fell on deaf ears. Yeah, so in 1948, he wrote an essay called Here is New York, which is kind of famous. And so the essay is about how much he loves New York City. He's from New York. And then he ends the essay on this super ominous note where he says, The city, for the first time in its long history, is destructible. A single flight of planes no bigger than a wedge of geese can quickly end this island fantasy. Burn the towers, crumble the bridges turn the underground passages into lethal chambers, cremate the millions. The intimation of mortality is part of New York now, the sound of jets overhead, and the black headlines of the latest edition. All dwellers in cities must live with the stubborn fact of annihilation. In New York, the fact is somewhat more concentrated because of the concentration of the city itself, and because of all targets, New York has a certain clear priority. In the mind of whatever perverted dreamer might loose the lightning, New York must hold a steady, irresistible charm. Good God. It's, like, very, very weirdly prophetic. I hate it. Yeah. So I don't even know how to transition out of that, but... Yeah, so you guys can sit with that one for a bit. But while we're on the topic of distressing things... I have Ooh, yes. one more tangent that was brought to our attention by a listener and our friend, Brittany. So We love you, Brittany. We love you, Brittany. Thank you for telling us about this. So there was a woman who is known as the woman who birthed rabbits. Her name is Mary Toft, and she lived from 1701 to 1763 in England. She was a servant. And in 1726, she became the subject of controversy when she tricked doctors into believing that she had given birth to rabbits 17 times. Whew. So yeah, that started in uh, 1726. She became pregnant and following her reported fascination with the sighting of a rabbit, she miscarried. And following her miscarriage and while her cervix permitted access, a friend inserted the claws and body of a cat and the head of a rabbit into her womb. Uh, And for the later births, she inserted animal parts into her vagina. 
who is this friend? Yeah. Can you imagine getting that call? (laughs) It's, like, very interesting, actually. Well, at various points, so Mary Toft eventually, like, admitted to the ruse, but she did say it wasn't her idea that other people, it was other people's idea, which, like, makes it even weirder. Um, (laughs) But her explanation as to how she gave birth to these rodents was that uh, it was rooted in the theory of maternal impression, which is the idea that a woman's thoughts or dreams could influence her offspring. So people thought that this was like an explanation that was used to explain some birth defects. I guess just getting back to Freud, another way to blame the mother, that what you thought about, you would birth. And so her claim was that when she was pregnant, she got startled by a rabbit in a field and then couldn't stop thinking about rabbits, (laughs) as one does, and then gave birth to a bunch of rabbit parts and also parts of some other animals. And the case was brought to the attention of Nathaniel St. Andre, a surgeon to the royal household of King George I, and he determined her case was real. Oh boy, come on, buddy. And Toth got brought to London, and she was studied in detail. And coincidentally, in that time period, uh, gave birth to exactly no more rabbits. And then, of course, it was pretty clear where this was going, and she confessed the lie and was imprisoned as a fraud and then was ultimately released without charge. Good for her. Yeah. She didn't do anything wrong, except to herself, I guess. That, ooh. Yeah, I can't even imagine. My whole lower half of my body just clenched so aggressively. (laughs) So the public mockery from this really embarrassed the medical profession. (laughs) Rightfully so. She single-handedly ended the careers <laughs> of several <laughs> several prominent surgeons, which is amazing. I think it's possible that maybe Mrs. Little was pulling some nonsense. Yeah, conceivable. Maybe maternal impression is real. Maybe she was thinking a lot about mice while she was pregnant. Yep, checks out. We've all been there. I mean, not... Not all of us, but, you know, for sure some. Yeah, and that actually, one of the other things I'd like to talk about is, while we're on the subject of rodents, rodents are a really big part of children's literature. There's so many books about mice and rats. Just off the top of my head, I came up with a list here. We've got The Mouse and the Motorcycle, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, The Cricket in Times Square, The Rescuers... Angelina Ballerina, The Tale Woo! of Despero. Love Angelina. Oh yeah, Angelina. Love her. The Tale of Despero, Poppy, Redwall. Yeah, there's so many. And so I was curious about like, what is it exactly about tiny rodents that makes for such good literature? Because as a kid, I loved reading books about mice and, Same. and hamsters, rabbits. I love the mouse. We're going to have to do the mouse and the motorcycle yes. down the line. Of course, we of have course. no choice. Yeah, and so I found this quote that was from Margaret Blount's book Animal Land, which is a book that kind of, kind of like an academic text that ex- analyzes the way that animals are written about and used in children's literature. She writes, when mice are not populating a mirror world, sheer charm and smallness take over, the small size often being allied to courage and resourcefulness. Mice are useful creatures who, if you have a doll's house, will come and inhabit it for you. At its most crude, the small character is the one who is forever outwitting the larger one, as in Tom and Jerry. More delicately, mice will become actors in tales where miniature life is enjoyed for its own sake. 
Some, feeling the pleasure of this idea, have used miniature humans for the purpose. The borrowers, Mistress Masham's repose. Or invented a different species. Wombles, and rather larger, hobbits. So I agree. I think that one of my favorite things about Stuart Little is all the tiny things that he uses. <laughs> yes, like his little gun. <laughs> yes. And there's something so charming about these little miniature worlds that mice are able to inhabit. Kids love stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, I think adults do too. I don't know. There's like a natural human desire for tininess. Love small things. An acorn cup, an acorn cap as a little bowl. Love that. Live for that. You know? I mean, like think, like Beatrix Potter. I'm surprised she wasn't referenced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they're a better fit for it than, say, like a bird because they're more easy to anthropomorphize. They've got little hands yeah. They've got little legs, you know, easier than an an insect or a a bird or a frog. Right. Mice are the natural itsy bitsy human counterparts. And they're cute. I'm unapologetically pro mice. So Word. I love to draw and I basically exclusively draw mice wearing small outfits. <laughs> so <laughs> it's true. Sarah can attest to this. They're very cute. Um, I also think that, like, as children, there's something delightful and comforting about these tiny creatures that are able to go on these adventures and strike out on their own in the world, because I think that kids can relate to that. After we've read one of these books from our childhood, it's fun to kind of consider what lessons they might have. And <laughs> this book definitely doesn't have any kind of, like, moralizing or anything like that. <laughs> to it it's kind of it's it's decidedly a world of chaos but i don't know terry did you were you able to discern any lessons from this book yeah this idea of of accepting oneself uh sarah pointed out that stewart never wishes that he's not a mouse his family love him as he is they're very accommodating of his condition They they even remove references to mice that they find demeaning from, like, children's books and Christmas carols. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fairly heartwarming tale of acceptance. Everyone seems to to vibe with the little dude. <laughs> Except for Snowbell, of course. Right. Yeah, it's true. They, they edit out um, the references to mice in the fairy tales that they read because they find them degrading. It is so thoughtful. It really is. They, they'll, it's funny that they'll think to do that, but are fine with being like, you know, go in the piano. Yeah. yeah or they, they never get him, like, I don't know, a working sink? Yeah. They, they found him a gun, for God's sake. But, like, every morning this kid has to, like, hammer. He has to have it use a miniature hammer to turn the sink so that he can get a trickle of water to brush his little teeth. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't really know where I stand on the littles. I think that maybe an important lesson for kids that comes from this book is that also not all stories have happy endings or even endings at all. Yep. Well said. (laughs) Sometimes life just keeps on going and something that you think is going to happen does not happen. You expect probably uh, Stuart Little to like get his shit together. And (laughs) during that horrible date with Harriet, like instead he just pouts and honestly pretty realistic so and valuable life lesson for women you can just walk away from a bad date yeah you don't have to hang around you don't have to try to make him feel better you can just go just say no thanks (laughs) so 
I don't know if E.B. White intended that, but that is a incredibly valuable life lesson that you get that you can glean from Stuart Little. Yeah, Harriet knows what she wants, and she's not about to waste her time. So on the topic of Stuart being very kind of smug and very confident, so he doesn't pay fare when he goes on buses because he isn't big enough to carry a dime. And incidentally, <laughs> the only time he ever attempted to carry a dime, he had rolled the coin along like a hoop while he raced along beside it. But it had got away from him on a hill and had been snatched up by an old woman with no teeth. There's um, a real fixation on dentistry. Yes, I was just thinking that. This woman has clearly visited um, his doctor friend, and he I'm sure he thought highly of her. Yeah. She probably had lots of good ideas. <laughs> <laughs> like stealing a dime from a child rat. <laughs> and so um, instead of using real currency, Stuart uses tiny coins that his father makes for him out of tinfoil. So this is not legal tender. They were hit some little things, although rather hard to see without putting on your spectacles. And so Stuart offers some of his coins to the conductor of this bus. And the conductor says, what's that you're offering me? And Stuart says, it's one of my dimes. Is it now, said the conductor. Well, I'll have a fine time explaining that to the bus company. Why, you're no bigger than a dime yourself. Yes, I am, replied Stuart angrily. I'm more than twice as big as a dime. A dime only comes up to here on me. And Stuart pointed out his hip. Furthermore, he added, I didn't come on this bus to be insulted. I beg pardon, said the conductor. You'll have to forgive me, for I had no idea that in all the world there was such a small sailor. Live and learn, muttered Stuart tartly, putting his change purse back in his pocket. He's such a little jerk. (laughs) It's like... I mean, yeah, the bus conductor was being kind of insensitive, you know, but also Stuart didn't offer him real money. So Exactly. I'm sorry, but that's just as insulting. Like, why not just show up with nothing? I know. Live and learn, said Stuart tartly. <laughs> Stuart is not polite. That is such BS. <laughs> All right, guys, it's that time. We are wrapping it up, which means it's time for the segment of our show where we will rate the book that we have just reviewed. And Sarah, I would love to know how you are going to rate Stuart Little. This is really hard because it's really a book of really high highs and really low lows. <laughs> yes. So it's hard to to rate it. But I think keeping in mind the ratings that we've given other books, this is probably um, a 7 out of 10 for me. More specifically, 7 mom's hairs that have been pulled from a comb. So I would give this book 7 out of 10 mom's hairs. And if I were to judge this on the uh, empirical mom's hairs rating system, I actually would also give this 7 out of 10 of my mother's hairs. I really do love this book. I do. Uh, But as Sarah says, there's much to consider, which is why I cannot go higher. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think if like, so Tuck Everlasting is a 10 out of 10 for me. This is, you know, it's not that. Exactly. It's good, but it's not not a 10 out of 10. So thank you all so much for listening to episode five of Reading During Recess. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. We're a new show, and so it's really helpful to have people rating the show and talking about it. And uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at reading underscore recess. And if you have 
Stuart Little related hot takes you'd like to share with us, <laughs> you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. And to all you substitute teachers out there, stay reading. <laughs> <laughs>